Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It is my belief that a decline, and I refer to it as a simplification, is now inevitable. And technology is going to help our future. We're going to need innovation and tech, but towards eventually a smaller system. But there is no government or cultural ability to plan for this. We're headed into this moment completely unprepared, but we need more people to take this on board and kind of meet the future halfway. I'm Sarah Wilson, and this is Wild, a show where we talk with the biggest minds in the world about the ideas that can help us love and save our one wild and precious life together on this planet. Now, what if the whole way we've been looking at our precarious predicament on the planet today has been wrong? Or at the very least, what if we've been looking at it from the wrong angle? Most of us here, I imagine, are concerned about our fate on the planet, but we've been focused on climate change and legitimately so. We've been talking about how the impacts of warming, the way tipping points and the exceeding of planetary boundaries will lead to our undoing. And we've mostly been talking about switching out our ways to renewable sources of energy. This has been our big hopeful way out, green growth, new green deals, sustainable economies. And add to this all the tech solutions and AI openings that can help us solve issues. We can do it, people, has been our kind of mantra. But there's another factor in all of this that sits behind and above it all. That is the fact that the energy to do all this, to transition, to drive this green growth, to turn on lights, to power the AI while we nut it all out, well, it turns out not to exist. This is an economic reality, and it's all to do with the incredibly precarious way our entire existence is tethered to GDP and a shit ton of debt and interest. This is not a realm I'm familiar or comfortable with. I understand the, the basics only of economic theory, but thankfully, my guest today, the indefatigable Nate Hagens, is adept at explaining it all. Nate used to work on Wall Street for Lehman Brothers and many others, but he woke up one day to the fact that the entire system does not stack up. Or it does, but it is destined to topple, and very soon. For the past 20 years, he's worked tirelessly educating the world on energy systems and their intricate and cannibalising relationship with the way our economy operates. Today, he's Director of the Institute for the Study of Energy and Our Future. He's on the board of the Post-Carbon Institute and the Bottleneck Foundation. He teaches an honours course 
aptly titled Reality 101 at the University of Minnesota. Now, Nate and I met in Stockholm recently at the Stockholm Impact Week conference, which brought together thought leaders and impact investors, including a crew from Australia assembled by small giants, to discuss all these kinds of topics. The information Nate shares in this conversation is super challenging, and it complements a few discussions I've had here on Wild already, and you might recall I promised several times to keep the gist of this conversation going. And I now really encourage you to go back and listen to some of these previous conversations. There's the Limit to Growth conversation that I had with Gaia Harrington, the woman who revisited the 1972 Club of Rome and MIT report that first identified this idea of growth being impossible going forward. Other episodes to look out for are actually with guests that Nate has on his own podcast called The Great Simplification. So Douglas Rushkoff, the cyberpunk, who talks through the realities of billionaires prepping for the apocalypse, and Tyson Yunkerporter, who talks to both Nate and I on our respective podcasts about Indigenous complexity theories, which are super well equipped for navigating the what next conversations we are all wanting to have once we let this new reality settle in. Fortunately, Nate is also very focused on this what next aspect of things that are grounded in principles of living a meaningful life. He has a great simplification theory, which is all about a way to live as we hit our planetary boundaries, basically beating the rush as he puts it. Now, before we kick off, I'm going to ask if you might help me out a bit. It takes a hell of a lot of work and expense to run this podcast. And well, I do need some help if we're going to keep it going, going forward. I was wondering, would you all care to vote for Wild in the listener's choice category at the Australian Podcast Awards? It takes two seconds to do it um, and anyone in the world can vote. So if you're living over in France, the UK, the US, you can also vote. And I've put the link in the notes and I promise it really only takes a couple of seconds to do the vote. Just make sure you look for Wild with Sarah Wilson in the drop-down menu. And also, while I'm asking for favours, and I'm sorry in advance, I was wondering if you could take a moment to rate Wild on whichever platform you're listening to this on and also tap out a comment, a positive one, while you're there. That would be wonderful. It really does make a difference. And if you're a like-minded corporate or a brand, you might like to sponsor Wild. I tend to partner only with brands that are on the same page as me with things, which narrows the field, but it does keep things real and non-cringy, I hope. And it does mean that if you partner with me, the listener here knows you must be legit. Okay, one other little thing. Nate and I decided to sit in a park in the middle of Stockholm to record this conversation. So top line apologies for the background park noises. We figured it was way more pleasant than the groan of the air conditioning in the hotel lobby, which was our only other option at the time. Okay, please meet Nate Hagens. Nate Hagens, thank you for sitting next to me on a drain outside some kind of museum or library in some random park in Stockholm. Happy to be here. It's a beautiful park. It is. It's sort of fishing in a way after the week or the few days that we've had discussing oh, incredibly complex stuff. So let's keep it simple and, and sit in this park. And listeners, you'll have to excuse sounds of dogs and people running and park noises, but it's all part of it. Hey, let's start off. You had this incredible career in finance. What saw you move? What was the big coming to Jesus moment that moved you into this energy space? 
So around 20 years ago, I was managing money for wealthy families on Wall Street. And one of my clients started trading oil futures. And as his broker, I started to learn about oil. And I found three things that I had no idea about. One was how incredibly powerful a barrel of oil does uh, for human society. It does the equivalent of 11 years of human labor and we pay $80 for it. And I was like, whoa, this like mm. is an incredible support for our entire economic system. Number two, that the amount of this oil was going to peak and decline in my lifetime. We're all alive during what I refer to as the carbon pulse when we are drawing down ancient carbon millions of times faster than Mother Nature uh, created it. So, so this is um, a bank account that our culture has been treating as if it were interest. And so we don't factor that it won't be here for much longer into our economic decisions or our education or even our cultural goals. And then the third thing that I became aware of is the environmental damages, CO2 and climate change and impact on oceans being one of many plastics, endocrine disrupting chemicals, all the, the non-diesel and gasoline products that come from hydrocarbons that are waste products in the system, that those impacts on nature and on the future and on the biosphere are not included in our prices. We internalize the profits and we externalize the damages. And so those three things like caused me to say, whoa, wait a minute. And I became so obsessed with learning about all this that eventually I gave my clients their money back. I quit. I hiked around Canada for six months with my dog and a backpack full of books. And then I went and got my PhD in ecological economics. And for the last 20 years, I've been putting together what I refer to as a system synthesis of the human predicament, which is how human behavior, neuroscience, anthropology fit together with debt and energy and money and economic systems fit together with the ecology and biodiversity and the, the ecosphere of the planet into a coherent picture. Mm. And I have a podcast that I call the great simplification. And partially I call it that because I'm simplifying this complex story for more humans. Partially I call it that because for many of us listening to your show, simplifying our lives would actually be a, a good thing. But the main reason is an academic reason, which is humans historically have solved problems by adding complexity. And complexity requires energy like this police car going past us right now is heading somewhere that requires energy to trans transport things. So the more complexity that we've added, the larger the, the foundational spigot of energy that we need. And all of our technological plans and forecasts about the future are predicated on this invisible assumption that this carbon pulse of pretty much indistinguishable from magic energy bonanza that we're adding to the human economy will continue to grow and it won't. Mm. So what will technology do once our energy font starts to decline? The reverse of a complexification will happen, a simplification where we will not have 
six continent overnight supply chains at the size and scale that we do today. The, the challenges and the reason I'm doing this work is that our culture looks at our success and looks at our wealth as a product of our cleverness and money. It's, it's technology and economics that describe our wealth. The reality is a lot of our wealth comes from energy and other non-renewable inputs, as well as the ecosystem services that the biosphere gives us that we don't have to pay for and we take for granted, but we are impacting in a large way. Okay, I want to get back to the great simplification because just to sort of sum it up, we have created a world which has become more and more complex with a whole range of systems that interrelate to the point where, you know, in in the circles that we've been in here in Stockholm, they call it the meta-crisis. It is so complex, our brains just can't fathom it all. And we've got to a point where we can't solve the crisis that we've created, the, the multiple crises. And so essentially we're going to reach a tipping point and there's arguments that we're there and it will turn into a simplification, also called some form of collapse. We'll break that down and we will get to the great simplification, which is your thesis that really paves a way, not a solution, but a way to live through this in, in a form that I think is joyous. And I really want to dedicate some time to that. But before we get there, let's unpack some of the stuff you've covered. And I think a really good entry point for that is is sort of starting off with what we deem to be the way forward at the moment. For so many people in our culture, many listeners here, myself up until recently, felt that, you know, solving the climate crisis through green growth, through sustainable energy, by switching from fossil fuels to these renewable energy sources, this was going to be our great hope. And if we could just all do it together, and with the help of tech and, and, and now AI, we're going to be able to make that great transition and have a hope of saving ourselves. Now, from what I've learned this week and, and over the recent months and reading a lot of your work and listening to your podcast, that isn't the case and categorically isn't the case. It is not, green growth is not an option. It is an impossibility. But let's just talk about that a little bit. Let's imagine there is a listener out there wanting to work out how they should go about driving a car. They've got a standard, you know, fossil fueled car and they're thinking, do I switch to some kind of electric vehicle? That's a quandary a lot of people are facing. Can you talk through the problems there? Like which one's better? Which one's better? So first of all, let me talk about energy properties. So energy is the currency of life and we need energy in every single aspect of our human economy to invent things, to manufacture them to deliver them, to process them, to run them, to maintain, to repair. Energy and GDP are 99% correlated, okay? Materials like copper or lithium or cobalt or wood or plastic or whatever are 100% correlated with GDP. If we double our GDP, we're going to double our our material footprint. So what ends up happening is economically... We, in our current culture, try to maximize our salaries and our profits um, every quarter, every year. And we do this as individuals, as families, as small businesses, as corporations, as nations. We're trying to maximize our profits that are 99% tethered to 
energy, which globally is 82% tethered to fossil energy. So the logic was, let's get rid of this dirty energy that's causing pollution and ocean heating and acidification and climate change, and let's only use the good energy. Mm, So Uh, wind and solar and that kind of thing. Yes. So that is a knee-jerk response, but it turns out to, for the challenges that we face, is not the answer for many reasons. First of all, because of the metabolism of what I refer to as the global superorganism, there has been no green transition. There has been no reduction in fossil hydrocarbon use. In fact, in June of 2023, we just hit an all-time high of coal use globally, even at the time that we're growing renewable energy at the fastest time in history. So we're and that's adding... Called the, that's called the Jevons paradox, right? Where you add new technology to a system that's meant to alleviate some particular problem, but it actually creates more demand for both. So we invented washing machines. I think this is a great way to explain it. You know, we invented washing machines thinking that that would, you know, see us spending less time washing our clothes. But instead of washing our clothes once a week, we then washed them, you know, every day. And we spent just as much time or even more time washing our clothes. Lots of examples like that. We invented the the computer and all of a sudden we have 10 times more paper being used than 30 years ago as one example. Or LED lights, yes, they save energy, but in, in anything that saves energy allows more money and indirectly more energy to be used elsewhere in the system. And that's what's happening with renewable energy. We're creating more re- and renewable energy sources, but we're actually using more energy overall. That's correct. That's one of the problems, is that we're growing the whole system. So from a climate change standpoint, we're having even higher emissions than we did. Now, there are many countries, 20 or 30 countries, that are doing something called coupling their emissions from their GDP. So we're growing our GDP at X percent and our emissions are growing at something less than X percent. But from a climate perspective, all we care about is the global number. And from a global perspective, there has been no decoupling. So that that's one aspect. But the other aspect, there's several other things. First of all, all the renewable energy types out there, most of them are produce electricity. Electricity is only 20% of our energy. Mm, so 80% uh, is producing things like the plastic bottles and and everything that we Transportation, consume. heating, all, all kinds of other things. So, so switching to renewables ain't going to fix that at this stage. We can switch some of those things to using electricity. We can switch even more of them at a much higher cost. And some of the things like air tra- you know, jumbo jets and heavy cargo ships aren't going to easily be switched. Another aspect, though, is there's this naive assumption that if we all buy electric vehicles and no one buys internal combustion engines, that that will save a lot of oil from being burned. And that is not true because gasoline is merely one of 6,000 products that come from a barrel of oil. And you have to refine a barrel of oil sequentially from the top down to the bottom. And so even if we didn't need any gasoline, gasoline is 40% of a barrel of oil, we would still need all the other products in the global economy like medicines and plastic Mm. and the asphalt for the roads 
Um, and all these things are in a barrel of oil. So a full switch to EVs would only reduce our, our gasoline, our, our oil demand by a couple percent. There's also the fact that solar panels and wind farms are not renewable. Solar panels at best last 20 years. That is, that's not renewable. That's, that's right. In my book, Reality Blind, for my college students, I refer to them as rebuildable. An oak tree is renewable. A chicken is renewable as long as you find an acorn or another chicken. Solar panels are no more renewable than a pickup truck because we have to rebuild them with complex machinery and global supply chains and photovoltaic inputs and PhD students who have microcrystalline expertise and combinatory processing. All that stuff is at best rebuildable. And a lot of it, there's, there's fields and fields of, of wind turbine blades that have been taken down. There's a disposal uh, a problem. So solar and wind in their current form are just part of the business as usual uh, model. industrial model. But what they are doing is they're extending the use of fossil carbon. For instance, in countries that use a lot of solar and wind, those countries are burning less natural gas which will be burnt in the future, probably. So from a conservation standpoint, solar and wind make sense because they're extending the amount of, of stored sunlight that we can burn in the future. From a climate standpoint, they don't. Ah, well, they could if we had different cultural objectives. I think solar and wind and nuclear and other tech are the right answers to the wrong question. Right now, we're trying to use them as a, a simple response to the climate crisis, when in reality, they're making the climate crisis worse, in my opinion. There's also biodiversity, there's pollution, which of course are all interrelated, but they're also separate issues. And switching to renewables, don't it doesn't fix all of those issues. And look, it's a big, complex topic. I suppose if I was to say, what's the answer? What car should people be driving? You would probably say that's an answer that you're going to have to provide to the wrong question because really one is not better than the other. What car should people drive? If, if possible, they should use a bicycle or walk would be my answer because that's where the, or public transport, that's where more and more people will be forced to go in the future because we don't, okay. I mean, I don't often talk about human population, but there are 8 billion humans alive today and we're adding around 80 million new humans, seven pound baby boys and girls every year. But at the same time, we're adding 100 million 3,000 pound vehicles to the planet every year. So is there really a population? There, there's two population problems. There's the number of humans, and then there's the number of machines mm. that we're adding to the economy to support this type of cultural narrative that everyone should have a personal car. We just can't afford it. In the United States right now, because of higher interest rates and because of wealth inequality, less than 50% of the population can even afford a car payment right now. So something's going to have to give in, in this story. Mm. And, and, and really, that brings us to your central point. Something is going to have to give, and it is already giving. It leads us to the big quandary here. There is simply not enough energy to do growth of any kind, whether it's green growth, whether it's degrowth to a certain extent. We won't go there on, on this conversation. But we are still linking everything that we do to 
growth, to GDP, but also to this idea of debt. Everything is leveraged on debt. And so we're really putting future claims on this energy that is finite. There is not enough energy to even solve the energy crisis. I mean, that's that's kind of where things arrive at. But can we break it down? Can we possibly find a way in, on the, in a podcast without all your wonderful graphs? And I encourage people to go and check out Nate's website where all of these graphs and so on exist and, 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 and explains it very well. But how are you able to explain to people, uh, what are we looking at? Oh, this dog. <laughs> <laughs> he is a happy little animal. Oh, my, my goodness. <laughs> That's just a ball it's of It's too bad fun. this is an audio podcast. That's right. Tiny black dog running in circles and jumping up for joy. It's a um, nice reminder. So yes, look, we're, money. We're, yes, it's it. This is all about the economy and it is about our addiction to debt and the fact that the whole system is built on this precarious stacking of debt upon debt upon debt and it's all leveraging off this idea that there is enough energy to service that debt and there isn't and it's about to all collapse. Talk us through it. <laughs> it's not built on our addiction to debt. It's built on an addiction to consumption, on an economic system that creates an exponential imperative for growth. So when money comes into existence, the vast majority of that happens at commercial banks. And commercial banks, just like governments and most people, are energy blind. They don't realize the deep tether that our economic growth has to energy and how finite this high quality energy is. So we make loans not out of existing capital, but we make loans with no relation to the amount of physical stuff in the world. We make loans based on the, the health of the bank and the credit worthiness of the borrower. If you went to Banque du Paris and got a million uh, euro loan for some business, there would be a million euros added to your account and a million euro IOU added to the bank's account. And from a financial perspective, the world would be in equilibrium. But the same amount of oil or coal or lithium or copper or trees or dolphins existed 10 minutes earlier as they do now. So what we're doing is growing our financial claims on reality faster, much faster than the reality can, can catch up. And when we run into an economic problem of a depression or a recession or we can't afford a, a COVID response or to bail us out of the great financial crisis, governments then print money and currency, the, the European Central Bank or the, uh, the Federal Reserve or the Bank of England or whatever, and we, we can print money, but we cannot print energy. So what ends up happening is we're accelerating the number of claims we have on reality because every euro that you have in your wallet or in your bank account, when you spend it, it will be spent on something that was created using a little small fire somewhere on the planet. The link to energy is very, very high. So what debt ends up being then is a claim on future energy. And as you said, ultimately, we're doubling down on what got us here. Instead of tightening our belts and consuming less, mm. which now is inevitable, we are growing more financial claims on the same underlying reality. Which is dwindling at the same time. Which is dwindling at the same time. And the problem, if I understand it correctly, Nate, is that our GDP is growing and it's exponential growth, which means that the debt is also 
growing exponentially, which means that our claim on energy, our requirement of energy to service this debt, right, and keep everything kind of balanced also needs to be exponential, yet it's declining. So it's, it's, it's not so much, and I asked this question of you the other day, it's not so much that we're going to run out of oil and gas in the ground in the, in the sort of a short-term period. The greater risk, the thing that's going to come first is the fact that there's actually not going to be enough of an economy, enough money to extract enough energy to serve this exponential debt, this global exponential debt. Yeah. It just, it's just unfathomable. And because it's exponential, it's, it's, it's a train that's run out of control. The bunch of different pieces there. One, one part that I forgot to say is when that million euros entered your account, what was not created was the interest that you're going to have to pay in the future. So when money is created, the interest is not. So the interest becomes a growth imperative for the global system that it must grow to pay back the to interest, that interest. And, yeah. and eventually pay back the, the principal. So yes, eventually, like you said, we're not running out of energy unless you make the the claim that we were running out of energy from the very first day that we started to extract it. Mm. What what will happen is we will run out of enough energy at an affordable enough price to continue economic growth. And so what ends up happening is at that moment, and that moment I think is coming before the year 2030, we will have a, a series of financial crises because the number of financial claims that we have is very much like a musical chair scenario. And so peak oil and oil depletion isn't about running out. It's about running out of enough to continue our current institutional expectations and, mm. and financial claims. I had Guy Harrington who did that revisit of the Limits to Growth report and tracked the modelling from 1972 and found that we're exactly on track for what was predicted back then, which is essentially hitting peak around around about now in the next year or two. And then we'd see a collapse, a global civilizational collapse in 2040 as the stack of cards collapses. Is that something that you've followed? Do you, does your modelling sort of track sim- in a similar fashion? I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase.
It is my belief that a decline, and I refer to it as a simplification, which is less binary than the word collapse, is now inevitable. Mm -hmm. Now, with AI or blockchain or some sort of a new technology, we could kick the can a little further. I think the timing and the scale of the decline is still very much in question. I don't like the word collapse because I think we could have a vibrant, meaningful civilization using our new technology, not only solar and wind, but also our regenerative agriculture and a lot of the things we didn't know before we found fossil fuels. It's just not going to be at the current size and scale of our current economy, which is around 19 terawatts or 19 trillion watts turned on constantly. And what that works out to be is around 190 billion 100 watt light bulbs that are turned on 24 seven powering the world. That is unsustainable. So we, we think about renewable futures and colonizing Mars and how technology is going to improve our future. And technology is going to help our future. We're going to need innovation and tech, but towards eventually a smaller system maybe 15 terawatts or 10 terawatts or 8 terawatts or something like that. But there is no government or cultural ability to plan for this. We're headed into this moment completely unprepared and blind, which is why I'm doing this work. This work isn't for everyone, but we need more people to take this on board conceptually, intellectually, emotionally, and kind of meet the future halfway. I guess I've got a couple of points here that I really want to kind of tick off with you before we just get you to explain what the great simplification can look like. I can't help but be fascinated or intrigued or note the fact that this is an it's going to come down to an economic simplification or, or collapse. I, as a climate activist for years, have been thinking, oh, my goodness, we're subservient to the economy. These economists just keep on talking about this stuff and it's like, well, there'll be no economy if there's no climate, you know, and, and we've been frustrated. And there's this kind of irony to the fact that actually it'll be the economy that goes first. And it's a big, big readjustment for me. And I'm just wondering for you, Nate, I mean, you are heavily engaged in climate themes. We've been ensconced in this notion of planetary boundaries and so on for the last few days together. But do you see the climate, where do you see the climate crisis, that the, the climate fight, quote unquote, sitting in all of this? Is it secondary? Is it a symptom of the same issue? And also, is, is the climate fight a little bit of a distraction from what we really need to be focusing on? I left Wall Street because I care deeply about the environment. So at my core, I am doing this work on behalf of the 10 million other species that we share the planet with and future generations of our species and theirs. And I started this with a focus on climate until I begin to see how the larger uh, picture fit together Climate change is not the problem. Climate is a symptom of a much larger problem, which is ecological overshoot of a social primate, humans. And when you say, is climate going to be the issue that hits first? Well, the answer is, it depends where you are. If you're in Libya, the answer is no. Climate change is hitting now. As a global culture, I think part of the system is that we have created 
in order to kick the can and avoid austerity, we've created incredible risks in the economic system. So for most people listening to this podcast in developed nations, I think we will have mm. to face an economic, social, political crisis before climate change is, is hugely relevant to our own personal lives. So the answers ultimately are the same. We're going to have to use less energy and have less globalization and, you know, focus on the best things in life are free after basic needs are met. Um, but even within the environmental movement, climate is too narrow of a focus because we've got endocrine disrupting chemicals and human sperm count is not, not dropping at 2% a year. We're losing insect biomass at around 2% a year. Are those two correlated and why? We've got all kinds of biodiversity loss, animal, bird loss. So to focus on climate and just keep the rest of the system the same is an easy narrative for people. Climate's the problem. Let's yeah. reduce carbon and keep everything else the same. The problem is much, much deeper than that. Yeah. If you poke anywhere in this system, it's going to kind of have ramifications elsewhere. And that's what we're really starting to understand through the systems thinking. But I don't know, you speak to government officials, you speak to institutions around the world, right? And often economists. And this is modeling that is pretty open and shut. You can, you can add this stuff up and put it on a pie chart, a graph and show it to economists and, and government officials. What the hell is going on? I don't, I don't mean to be naive here, but I get, I get why people can kick the can down the road when it comes to climate because they've said, oh, the science is uncertain. There's been denialism. There's been doomism. There's been distraction. It's been a pretty easy thing for officials to avoid. But when you're talking about economic charts and you go in there and show people what's happening to an economic system they're very familiar with, like what, what is the, what is the response? Like you talk about energy blindness, but is there an absolute denial going on here? Or obfuscation, or is it, what, what's going on? So I have talked to a lot of global leaders. The former House Majority Leader of the U.S., Dick Gephardt, is uh, on my advisory board, a good friend of mine. Those people that are observing what's happening agree with most of what I say. Except most, many of them are flanked by an economist. And economists, which are kind of the uh, shaman of our culture, mostly totally disagree with everything I've said on this podcast. Because a standard economist, and keep in mind that 30% of the 200 million current college students in the world have business or economics degrees as their stated majors. Still today, we are teaching economics that is completely energy, ecology, and behavior blind. A standard economist will say, ah, with respect to resources, if the price of oil ever got high enough, we would find a substitute for it. Well, my response to that is we can substitute energy only with another form of energy, and there are energy properties. So uh, they think that our wealth and productivity is based on labor and capital, and energy is, is just accounts for its cost share to our economy. In other words, if energy costs... 5% of our annual budget, energy's contribution to society is 5%. Well, 
Well, energy's contribution is over 90% because a barrel of oil does five years of my work and we use 100 billion barrels of oil per year. So the global economy has 500 billion invisible human workers that we pay pennies on the dollar for their extraction. I think I've heard you put it in these terms. A barrel of oil is about 80 bucks at the moment, but it actually equates to if in real value when you take into account the extraction, the pollution, the removal eventually of, of, of the, the, you know, what comes out the other end, you're looking at hundreds of millions of dollars. Not exactly. It, when you, you're right, it costs $80 and the work value we get from it in the USA based on the average salary is around $200,000. The pollution is not included in there at all. Uh, yeah. that, that's, a, that's a separate story. Another thing an economist would say is, oh, we can have optimal climate change. We can go up to three or four degrees Celsius and it will have more productivity for plants. And it, it's just completely delusional how they include that. Like take, take for example, food. Food is only 3% of GDP. So if we lose all food, we only lose 3% of our GDP. That's what an it's economist... one way of looking at it. It's one way of looking at it, exactly. <laughs> but it, everything else is dependent on a viable biosphere yep. that is not included. Yep. So, so in my travels, I, I think a real block is those leaders that have like a economics bodyguard, intellectual bodyguard around them. And I think economic theory was developed during this one-time moonshot unique period of economic growth where we conflated what was really happening with energy and the ecosphere with stories about our cleverness. And I, I, I think we're, we're starting to realize that that is a emperor with no clothes. Nate, we need to get to the great simplification. And this is sort of your response to things, which I think is wonderful. You don't just plant the issue, you also plant a viable response to everything that everybody's just heard, which is heavy stuff. You know, the way you set it up is that we could continue business as usual and that's going to lead to a pretty horrible situation. I think you've described it as Mad Max. You know, it's a very apocalyptic. Then there's the green growth model, which we've discussed is not viable. The great simplification is this idea that complexity is going to have to switch out into a simplification as, as things run out. And what your idea is, is that we can get two steps ahead. We know it's coming, so either we can have it hit us over the head or we can prepare for it. We can anticipate it and start living out a far more simple life in anticipation of what is going to happen. Is that a fair assessment of, of, of what you put forward? If you understand human behaviour, that we are not going to en masse as a culture leave fossil carbon in the ground, voluntarily use less as a culture, vote in candidates that have us tighten our belts and do things more locally. If you really understand that, you kind of can infer that as individuals and as communities and as families and as groups of people, it's at that scale that we can simplify first and beat the rush. It's at that scale that we can change our definitions of, of self-worth away from financial net worth. It's at that scale that we can build social networks and human skills and human health and knowledge. And this is not a story for everyone. This is something I've learned doing the podcast. A lot of people are, are already freaked out about the future or the present. They don't have enough money to pay the bills and 
they have some mental health issues, et cetera. So there are certain people who I call the walking worried that are kind of aware that something is horribly wrong in our current society, but they're looking for a narrative and they're looking for a tribe, a group of people to connect with. And those people need to find each other now and start building relationships, conversations, pilots, little projects to work on a vibrant future, but one that is less global, less material consumptive, and and focused more on nature and the simpler things. I mean, I ask your, I ask this of my my 19 year old college students, but I'll ask your listeners to imagine the best 10 memories of their lives and how many of those memories required a ton of energy or a ton of money. A lot of them were with family or friends or a a boyfriend or a girlfriend or in nature on a camping trip or some natural experience. And we are caught in a culture where we need money and more stuff is considered a status symbol. And we need pilots of people living differently, headed towards a different culture. And so if we can, if you understand and, and at least somewhat agree with what I'm saying, you can act as a, what I call a rock in the river that is uh, an anchor of uh, emotional and physical and psychological strength in your community. So when the water metaphorically starts rushing faster, you stay put and you can help others. And if there's enough rocks in the river in your community, you could actually redirect the flow of the water. And, and so right now, I think we're in this liminal space between a system that's no longer working But instead of acknowledging that, we're doubling down on the let's colonize Mars and let's do transhumanism, changing our brains and all these things that are really distractions away from our real path that's coming. And if if, if we need people to self-organize on the real future that's coming, which is a simpler, less materialistic existence. Personally, I think this will be one of the greatest events in human history that's coming in the next couple decades, which is why I call it a great simplification. Yeah. And I know that we've run out of time here. You've got to go and have another meeting. But, you know, you do talk about a bunch of things that you do and that you advise other people to do or encourage people to do to cope, but also thrive. And there's things like shifting your dopamine dependence. And, you know, they're really simple things like, you know, not checking your phone, having boundaries in place to ensure that you're not completely dependent on this stuff that keeps you in that more, more, more mentality. And you make the point that in doing this, we actually change the conditions that can then set us up for this new world. We actually then get to have a say in how this next world that's going to have to replace the old world, which is dying, if not dead, and we will have a say in it. We're going to have to create it. And so we might as well do it now because it's about getting, I guess, beating the rush, as you put it. It's also, apart from anything else, a really fine way to live, a joyous way to live. And I think that that's what we've discovered the last couple of days. There's a bunch of us that get incredibly lonely. We've made sacrifices. You've made sacrifices similar to the ones that I've made. And there's a bunch of, a bunch of us that have done that. But it feels real and it feels better to be out of the cognitive dissonance and to be in some kind of congruence with the way that we know life flows. And just even recognising each other, creating a tribe by coming together to discuss this stuff is is so important. For people that are hearing this story for the first time, this is is a big old sledgehammer. And I've been working on this for 20 years. 
Uh, and you struggle with how to get the message I, across. We've had this conversation, right? You know? Yeah. I do because it's not, I mean, there's a, there's a trade-off between being accurate and being helpful. And some of this isn't, you know, I'm a, I'm a scientist and a teacher, so I'm trying to get the, the academic story right. But most people just want to figure out what to do, how to help my life. And, you know, in, in being here this week, it dawned on me that the most supportive things for me in my life are I do daily walks in nature with my dogs. I have my dogs and my ducks, which are instant, like living in the moment and just sitting in the grass with my ducks and observing them like is a calming antidote to the dopamine. I mean, the antidote to dopamine isn't just going cold turkey. The antidote is to have a, 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 a menu of other options that are more healthy. (laughs) Yeah. Like (laughs) oxytocin and serotonin and reading books and, and going on a bike ride or playing a game with a loved one or having a dinner with some friends. And all these things give you the, the craving, they reduce the cravings of the consumptive impulse of our current society. But earlier this week, I had dinner with eight people who really are deep in this meta crisis discussion. And we had a, a three hour dinner and I just felt so buoyed and complete and with my people. And despite the severity of the, the things we were talking about, what's happening with the oceans and insects and the economic system and the recent hurricane uh, damage in, in different countries, I felt like, ah, it's easy to deal with these things because I have a, a group of people that support me. We need to build that mm-hmm. in lots of places around the world because we don't actually need all this energy to be happy and healthy. We just look at how other people are living and want to emulate them. But if everyone in this city had a little tent and they had to live out of the tent, but everyone was doing that, most people would be fine. Mm, they're the Joneses we're, that we're going to be keeping up yeah, with. Yeah, we're trying to keep <laughs> keep up with the Joneses. I mean, some of the happiest people that I know is when I go past a trailer park on my bike where I live, because all the people around them are in a small double wide trailer park and the kids are kicking soccer balls. And I'm not trying to glorify poverty. But briefly speaking of poverty, we talk about marginalized communities. A lot of times what we really mean is they're financially marginalized. They're out of the current economic system. But in many ways, those people have had to become economically resilient themselves. And they've created Mm -hmm. social capital in their networks that are really strong and the, the rich people in communities sit in their house and order stuff that is delivered by trucks. And they have no community. They have no social network. We are going to need people again and soon. So my advice to your listeners is even even if you don't talk about these things per se, find people that share your worldview or that don't. Start making contacts and friends and build social capital. That's been a very big theme uh, in terms of solutions. There's not solutions, there's responses. And I think that's a fundamental one and you're not going to lose from doing it anyway. Hey, Nate, thanks for the big chats. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. I'm happy to come back. That is big and heavy and it's really hard to know where to begin to pull out some top line thoughts. But the bottom line is this, we only have a few viable options for our future. We can continue business as usual, this idea of extracting our way out of our scenario. But this will lead to collapse or simplification as Nate prefers to call it. 
Now, the green growth model, it might prolong things a while, but Nate argues, as Gaya Harrington did in the episode about the infamous limits to growth report that pegs collapse in 2040, well, it only pushes things out a little, maybe a decade or so. Now, a big part of the issue is that the green economy sees us consume more. Now, we talked about electric vehicles as a bit of an example to play with. A bunch of people I know bought an EV as their second car, which perhaps they wouldn't have bought otherwise. This is just one way that that Jevons paradox plays out. Also, just as I was researching for this podcast, I came across an article entitled Solar Panels Are Three Times More Carbon Intensive Than the IPCC Originally Claimed. Hmm. So that leaves us with the most palatable option that realistically is still on the table, and that is simplifying now. So it won't so much stave off collapse, but it will enable us to be a rock in the river, as Nate says, a stable entity, a leader as the flow of things around us speeds up. And we can be an attractor. Other rocks might join us and perhaps we can even steer the flow if enough of us congregate around this idea of simplifying. It also enables us to beat the rush, again, as Nate puts it, to be ready as destruction and change happens. Now, I'm finding myself flummoxed by this shift in dialogue that is emerging in this space. It's very different from the green growth thinking that I'd attach myself to with lashings of hope and wishful thinking for many years. You might be feeling the same, super overwhelmed and maybe even a little incredulous, like, is this really where we're at? You know, is this the only viable option that is available to, to prep, to prep for some kind of apocalypse? I had lots of questions and angles I wanted to cover with Nate, but we did run out of time. And one of the things I did want to raise is this idea, and it excites me a little. Is it possible that given there isn't the energy to solve the energy crisis, wouldn't it also be true that there isn't enough energy for, let's say, Elon Musk to go to Mars and for AI to get to a point where it can overtake humanity? This would have to be a silver lining in all of this. Okay, I will put this question to Nate and perhaps you have some extra questions for him as well. And so I think I'll start a thread over at my Substack where we can discuss all of this and get Nate to chime in. So make sure you head over to my Substack after you've listened to this podcast and you can join the conversation. The link is in the show notes, but it is sarahwilson.substack.com. And please, if you do get a moment, please remember to vote for WILD in the Australian Podcast Awards Listener's Choice section. The link to this is also in the show notes. Stay wild. I'll see you next week. 